to start this sermon, and this is always a good way to start sermons, I have some good news for you. Understanding Facebook could save your life, or at least your social life. So I read an article by Jenny Lee Williams uh, where she details seven ways to sabotage your social life on Facebook. And the key, she says, is to steer clear of those seven particular personas that you can choose on Facebook that can mess you up. So I don't have, we don't have time to do all seven. I think that would be fun, but it would take forever. So I'm taking requests. What number would you like to hear? Four. Oh, wow. Some big four fans here. All right. Well, we'll do four. Number four is, quote unquote, the duck face. Even if you're not familiar, this is her writing, with the technical term as coined uh, on antiduckface.com, you have certainly come across the phenomenon on Facebook or any other thing you can take a picture and put up. At some point, people began taking close-up self-portraits while wearing a distinct lip-protruding facial expression and leaving tit-for-tat comments on their friends' duckface pictures. If your Facebook photo pages are filled with duck face pictures, you might be sabotaging your social life. This Facebook persona leads people to believe that you are self-absorbed and or insecure, that you rely on positive photo comments to feel validated. Okay, so my, not my words, not my words. <laughs> What's another one to avoid? What number? Seven. All right, seven. Seven, the gag reflex inducer. If kissing pictures, mushy status updates, romantic quiz results, and posts from your significant other dominate your Facebook wall, you might be sabotaging your social life. The gag reflex inducer seems to have a mind for no one else but his or her significant other, and most people, especially those who are single and looking, will not take kindly to the constant reminder that others are blissfully in love. Yes, true friends should be happy because you are happy, but out of respect for others, you might want to dial down the mushiness on Facebook. All right. Words to the wise. What's another number? Number one. Number one. Man, you guys have group mind. Number one, the pusher. The pusher constantly invites you to events or to use applications. Quote, no, for the last time, I do not want to attend the weekly group meetings at your out-of-town college or apps. No, for the last time, I will not water your crops on Farmville. This Facebook persona leads people to believe you are persistent to the point of annoyance. Okay, so that's a persona to, invo- to avoid. One more. What number? Two. Two. All right, two. The autobiographer. I don't know if I said that right. Some people make such frequent Facebook status updates that they leave nothing up to the imagination. <laughs> the occasional witty or informative status updates makes you seem intriguing or interesting. On the other hand, repeatedly over-descriptive and or insignificant Facebook status updates could sabotage your social life. This Facebook persona leads people to believe that you are somewhat desperate for people to share your daily life with. Okay. So I know these kind of get cruel at the end there. I didn't, didn't mean that. But these are things that you can avoid, personas that you don't want to have on Facebook. They're tips, though, on how to maintain the persona that you do want to have. And they're kind of funny and lighthearted, but I think actually that understanding what is happening here can help you understand how we live our lives in general. Richard Rohr wrote a book called Falling Upward, which was an inspiration for the series we're in right now. And he defines persona this way. He says it's, quote, what others want from you and reward you for. 
And he continues by suggesting that your persona is what you put forward to distract yourself and others from what he calls your shadow. Your shadow is what you refuse to see about yourself and what you do not want others to see. Sound Facebook familiar? Or Instagram familiar? For example, are you careful about what music Facebook displays you are listening to? Do you think about what photos you post of yourself and what they say about you? Have you ever untagged yourself from a photo? I have, and I do. (laughs) And so if you're like me, uh, you're managing your persona. And my contention today is that we do this more than just on Facebook. And I think it's actually the default setting of our lives in a very deep way, and more importantly, that learning to admit this is a significant key to traveling down this road we're calling a further spiritual journey. And we've been talking about that through this whole series. So week one, we talked about what we build up uh, to define ourselves, to get us to this point in our life. And we talked about how it's gotten us here, but it won't take us all the way uh, where we want to go. Week two, we talked about having a mature, childlike faith and how powerful that can be. Week three was about finding ourselves in Christ. And last week, we looked at that the start on this journey is to hate what we've built up. And this week, we're going to look at finishing strong and how that entails learning to tear down what we've built up. And to examine this, we're going to take a look at what I'm calling a battle of personas in the Bible. Sound interesting? Okay, I hope so. So um, this is a long passage, too long to print everything in your bulletin, but I thought it might be fun to hear the whole thing, although it, it, it goes on for a little bit. But this is from 2 Corinthians in the 11th chapter. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that he founded. And he says this, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me as just you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you've even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, and I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have even gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Eratos 
had the city of, Dam- of Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, whether it was in the body, out of the body, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I am not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So, what we see here is a persona throwdown, literally of biblical proportions. So the author of this passage, which is a letter is the early church father Paul, I mentioned. And he's the founder of this church in Corinth to which he's writing. And after Paul founded this church and spent time there, he traveled on to found other congregations around the world. And while he was traveling, he receives word that others have come behind him calling themselves, quote-unquote, super apostles and are teaching different things, presumably about how people can be good Christians, while at the same time talking bad about Paul. And it seems that they're, if you read the whole letter, that they're likely teaching about how to be spiritual winners and using themselves as examples of what that looks like. So Paul writes, and he says, fine. You want to play that game? You think you can out-winner me? Check out my credentials. I've worked harder. I've suffered more. I have crazier, risky stories. I've had spiritual experiences that were so profound that I can't even give you all the details. I've worked miracles right in front of your eyes. Now, what do you got? And so Paul has the persona to whip all personas. Like his Facebook page would make you feel so boring, bad, lame, like, he, he, like you, would, you would block him because you wouldn't want to see all the crazy, amazing things that are happening if, if, if you're in that type of competition. <laughs> but he also says, I'm an idiot to talk like this. I'm a fool. Because personas, resumes, aren't the answer to their problems. They're the source. Now, if you read closely, you see that the Corinthians are actually being abused by these super apostles. So Paul says, you gladly put up with fools since you're so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. And I think what we'll see even in this passage is that Paul had come to the Corinthians with a message of grace and a message of freedom. 
And a message that, quite honestly, sometimes can seem too good to be true. So the super apostles come in later with personas, images that the people had to live up to. And instead of lifting burdens, the super apostles place burdens on the back of the Corinthians. This, look at my status, look at my page, look at my Instagram feed. This is what you've got to be. This is what you've got to do. And in the process, they abused them. This is important to note. And here's some things to keep in mind. On this journey, we're talking about this ongoing journey that we can be part of that's deeper, that can take us into a closer connection with Jesus and the good things in life. On this journey, we will experience pain. You can see this in the passage, no matter what. And we've talked some in this series about what I call necessary pain. So pain that sort of wakes us up to the things uh, that we need to see in our lives. Pain that brings transformation. But we've talked about pain enough that I'm afraid that we might get the wrong impression. (laughs) The wrong impression would be that a life following Jesus is a life of pain and and a life where we do not question the cultural norms around us is a lot easier, less painful. But that isn't true, actually. And that's what we see here. The question for us to consider isn't whether we will experience pain, but rather choosing which pain we want to experience in life. Because pain can be abusive or redemptive. You see, what we think with a persona is that we can control the pain in our lives by creating who we are, by defining ourselves, how we look, how others will see us, by creating a life for ourselves that protects us from pain, creating a container to hold the things of our lives that define us. I'm a good person. I'm religious. I'm wealthy. I'm socially concerned, whatever it might be. And we think if we do a good enough job of this, that we can hide the things about ourselves that we don't like, the shadow selves, or pretend that they don't even exist or forget that they do. And we think that this offers us a less painful life, an easier life. But Paul says in this passage that that persona approach actually enslaves us, exploits us, slaps us in the face, and we're okay with it. The things we build, the things we create to define ourselves ultimately don't fulfill us. And if we don't realize that, what happens is they end up driving us, demanding of us, condemning us because we don't measure up. And that's what we see here. Grace, it's abandoned. And it's replaced with performance and persona. And the pain that results is abusive. And here's why the pain of persona is abusive. It's not real. Persona. It's not attainable. So it always judges us. That's a terrible type of pain to choose. The alternative, we might call reality, is painful, but it can be redemptive. It can be redeemed. 
into something good that blesses us, that doesn't condemn or judge us. And what the Corinthians were forgetting is that they actually needed their weaknesses. They needed that shadow self. That weakness is a gift because it connects us to reality. It grounds us. Paul wrote, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Wow. Notice how Paul describes his experience with this thorn in the flesh. He says it was given to him as a gift, a good thing, a messenger from Satan, yet being used to his benefit. I think Paul realized that he had more weaknesses than he even realized. But when things go well for us, we tend to forget that. And we buy into our personas. And when that happens, we unfortunately begin to judge other people, right? We become our own version of super apostles, wondering why the people around us can't get it together. We become, often accidentally, abusers, even if only in our minds and how we think about people. So for his own good, God gives Paul a messenger from Satan. Whoa. And he uses that messenger to do great things through Paul, like keep him connected to reality so that he can write a letter like this. God uses everything. And we think of God using our talents, right? But he uses our failings, our weaknesses, and even our sin. God will work through anything, sometimes without our permission or awareness, even in spite of ourselves. Uh, who here has read the book A Wrinkle in Time? Anybody? That's a pretty good percentage, right? It's a young adult fiction. I think it came out in the, a long time ago, decades ago. So spoiler alert, sorry, we're going to talk about it. <laughs> but I feel like you had your chance. I'm famous for this. And it is coming out as a movie in the spring, so if you really haven't read it and you don't want to know, I'm sorry. It's, it, there's no turning back now. Um, but uh, the main character is a character named Meg. And at some point in the story, she's about to face the greatest challenge in the book in an attempt to save her father's life. And so she and her family and friends, uh, they meet with this sort of cosmic spiritual mentor named Ms. Whatsit, who's going to be played by Oprah. I think it's a pretty good choice. Don't worry about that. You don't have to picture her now. But, but she gives each of them a gift to help them on this quest, this journey. When she comes to Meg, this is what she gives Meg. Meg, I give you your faults. My faults, Meg cried, your faults. But I'm always trying to get rid of my faults. Yes, Mrs. Wetzit said. However, I think you'll find that they come in very handy on Kemazots. That's where they're headed. So when Meg does face the evil brain, it, it's actually her attitude, her stubbornness, her whininess, her impatience that keeps the mind-controlling it 
at bay just long enough for her to escape. And I think in the same way, God often will use everything in our lives to bring about good things, even our sin, even our failures, even weakness. That's known as redemption. So how do we think of our weaknesses then? Well, perhaps we should just let them be and hope that someday, somehow, something good comes of them. Paul actually suggests something very different. The power behind this is released through honesty. So Paul says that Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. God can and sometimes does work through our weaknesses and failures despite us. But there's another much more powerful way that our weaknesses can be used by God. It's a way that we can partner with him rather than live sort of like an oblivious, I have no idea what's going on sort of life. Honesty. Admitting our weaknesses has the effect of releasing the power of God in our lives. I hate to break it to you and to me, but you're not perfect in this life. Shocking, right? And you never will be, and I never will be either. And happiness, peace, security is in part wrapped up in understanding this. Certainly in general, but also in specific, in detail. Admitting the persona that we live by is false and that the shadow actually exists can release incredible power into our lives. We can lean into the power of God into our lives by admitting our failures and our weaknesses. How do I get in contact with more of the Spirit and the power of God? How many times have you asked yourself that? No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, front end, 25 years in, how can I experience more? Here's one way. You can lean in by being honest about your weakness and naming your specific weaknesses. You're tearing down the persona you've created and revealing the shadow. But here's the thing. Powerful honesty is specific. And this is what Paul is doing here. And one thing that I find truly amazing about this passage, he talks about this thing, this thorn in the flesh. That sounds pretty vague to us, doesn't it? I mean, what the heck is a thorn in the flesh? That's not a way we talk. <laughs> uh, and to us, it's vague. But to his readers, it wasn't vague. Commentators think that it was so obvious and clear what this thorn in the flesh was that his readers knew exactly what Paul was talking about. But to us, and I think by the grace of God, it's, to it's obscured. We don't know. And what that means is that every person in this room can relate to Paul. Every person in this room has a weakness that's real. And we can fill in the blank of this passage for ourselves what that weakness is. If Paul told us specifically then we would be judging ourselves against Paul's weakness. 
and that persona thing would be happening again. But everybody knew what it was. And so he was actually being very specific by saying my thorn in the flesh. They were like, oh, yeah. I have my weaknesses. I have this problem, particularly when I get overwhelmed in life. I will just zone out. And I'll become self-focused on myself or my own pain or being overwhelmed that I'll fail to see how the choices I make and the actions I take affect the people closest to me. And they get hurt. I'm disengaged. I also have this overactive desire for everything to be okay, for there to be no problems, so I can just take a breath. And that means I see things as problems that are really opportunities. And I let things go that need to be addressed. And as a leader of a church, I don't like to admit that that's a struggle I have, but it is. But admitting it, being honest, I'm hoping some powerful things can happen in my role here, but more than that, in my personal life. And when the shadow comes out in the open, the question then becomes, how will I now be rejected? But what Paul finds is this. Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace. Grace means I love you anyway. Sufficient means I'll make up the difference. That's what is available to us. That's what the power of God entering our lives looks like. It's experiencing the acceptance and love of God in the face of our shadow selves. And it means God coming through and doing something in and through us that makes up the difference where we lack. Sufficiency. And this is also where you discover who your true self is instead of your persona. When you realize that you're valued even when and as your persona comes down. The real you, warts and all, is actually good and loved and accepted. And when you discover this, there's something you can do in a new way. You can love. You no longer have to protect yourself. You can be vulnerable. You can even sacrifice for others. This is where the real power, the power of God, comes in. You know, going back to Meg and Wrinkle of Time, I'm going to run a little bit more of that for you. Her faults begin to take her over in the story. Impatience, anger, whininess, they come to a head. And as she realizes that even as she escaped, her brother, who was left behind in the mind control of this character called It, that he may never be saved. And what she does is she loses it. She throws a tantrum. All of her worst character attributes come out. She acts like a little child, kicking, screaming. And then she realizes that she's actually the only one that can save her brother. And after seeing her at her very worst, Mrs. Watsit, who's like the Holy Spirit character in the story, gives her a new gift to take with her to her fight. Her love. And this is ultimately the one thing that Meg has that it, evil it, does not have. It has all of her weaknesses, impatience, rudeness, anger, but it does not have love. And Meg's willingness to sacrifice herself, her love for her brother, frees him. 
her faults are truly redeemed as they're actually overcome. As her brother is freed and she's transformed by the experience. And at the end of the story, Meg knows who she is, her true self, in a deeper way. And with this knowledge, she becomes less impatient. She becomes more at peace. She becomes less whiny. She's transformed. But this transformation comes from facing the reality of her faults, not hiding them. The way up is down. Well, how do we know this is true? That's a nice story from Wrinkle in Time. Hopefully it's a great movie. You can sort of touch how good the book was. But how do we know this is true? Fiction will often replicate reality in our lives. But how do we know this is true? Well, we know this is true because this is the story. This is the story. How do we know that embracing our weaknesses can really release the power of God in our lives? How do we know that tearing down what we've spent years building up and admitting its shortcomings and our failures will really lead us down into a further journey of discovering our true selves in God? How do we know that? Well, we know that it's true because no human being would ever choose this as the route to deeper experiences in life. No person would make this the story. Yet it is the story because it's Jesus' story. Jesus has the ultimate persona, and he leaves it all to be weak, to die on a cross for the redemption of you and me and the entire world. This is the story, and this is how we find ourselves. This is the way it works. Jesus came and experienced firsthand our weakness. And his story is a story of redemption, resurrection, renewal, which is the story, if you pursue that story, you can experience the very best things in life. And things start to make sense. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that Jesus wasn't just a winner. He lost big. He experienced rejection. He was betrayed. He died alone. But that was just the start. Thank you for the image of the story of redemption and renewal and resurrection. May that give us hope that we can find ways to admit, lean in to our weakness, be vulnerable. And Father, I pray for myself and everybody in this room that every little inch we lean in, that we take a chance to be vulnerable, to show our real selves to people, follow their warts. God, would you come and meet us right there in a way that encourages us to do it again? where we've been burned in the past by being open and vulnerable. I pray right now, by your spirit, you come alongside of us. And however you do it, communicate to us your acceptance, even if we haven't seen it from people. Amen. If you're on the worship